This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 62, verses 6 through 12. It can be found in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 621. So Isaiah 62, starting at verse 6. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink in the courts of my sanctuary." Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out a city not forsaken. Good morning, everybody. Morning. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to see you. Welcome. Before I begin today, let me just hold up this card that you might have gotten on your way in. We're doing um, our DNA class uh, Friday night and Saturday morning, kind of a two-day seminar session. And we do this because here at Redeemer, we're committed to church membership. We believe that there's there's sections of the scripture that give instructions to the people with regard to their leaders, and there's instructions to the leaders with regard to their people, and membership is one of the ways that we apply that so that we know who uh, we're pastoring and you know who your leaders are, right? We want that relationship to be strong. Um, but DNA starts, and if you just want to hear more about our mission, vision, values, more texture, more of our story as a church, because you're curious or you've been around for a little while, that would happen Friday and Saturday. You can sign up online. Uh, directions will be on this card. Okay. This morning, this morning I want to start by kind of pulling the curtain back a little bit on some of my preparation when it goes into um, sermon prep throughout the week. The first thing I want to do is I want to just explain to you one of the things that I do. I sit down, I sit down during, I don't know, a week or two ahead of when the sermon starts, and I often ask God this. I say, hey God, what do your people need to hear from your word? Where can I get out of the way and pull back the curtain on your glory for the members of our church? Where can my words be offered as an instrument for your word in order to see you do what you do best and to see how you love our church through your scriptures. And I have, I have real faces in mind when I pray those prayers. I have families and I have tragedies in mind when I pray those prayers. 
I see real men and real women, faces of people in our body that need to be tended to like a tree, like a growing tree. People who need to see God prune certain parts of their lives. People who need the good doctor to reset bones and to apply medicine of the gospel to spiritual apathy or spiritual sickness. And this week I did the same thing I always do. And I asked God, Father in heaven, what do your people need from you, from this text, this morning, right now? I prayed and cultivated a burden and a longing for you, and I prayed and stirred and stoked inside my own heart and soul a longing and a desire for our people. And Isaiah 62 contains that longing, contains that longing. And before I get to it, this week was also a little bit different than... um, than the other 51 weeks of the year because this week was a birthday week for me. Mm -hmm. And that provided certain opportunities, right? It provided opportunities to receive love and kindness from my family and friends and all the people God's put in my life. It also provided something else. It provided an opportunity to get to do some remembering, right? Just like this text says, I got to look back on some of the profound and unbelievable memories that I have in my life. I had a number of people ask questions about how I came to Kansas City or how I met my wife, Rochelle. I, had, I, got, to, I got to tell that story a couple different times during this week. And it makes the application of the scripture from this week really acute for me. Because as I think about the people in Isaiah that we've been reading about for 60 plus chapters, I look at them and I don't see a group of people who are kind of like me. I see a group of people who are exactly like me. I am the spitting image of an unfaithful, ungrateful people who despised God's instruction, but then demanded all of his benefits and all of his gifts. I lived for a number of years as a backslidden Christian who wasted his inheritance pursuing seedy and sordid lifestyle choices. I looked for help and life and love in everything that the world had to offer, and it it left me devastated and alone, and yet somehow still self-righteous and arrogant. And I don't mind telling you that because the Bible's true, and because human beings just aren't very different. I'm just like these people, and all of us are just like these people too. Whether we always realize it or not is one thing, but we are. And hey, take comfort. That's why it's in there. That's why these stories are in here. The story of God's people isn't recorded primarily so that we can avoid making the same mistakes that these people made. The story of God's people isn't primarily in here so that we can learn a lesson about how to live a better life. The story of these failures are here because we need to see what we're truly capable of. We need things to help us understand how our hearts work. We need to see ourselves for who we truly are. These stories are here so that we can wake up and see ourselves so we can truly see God for who he is. You see, Jesus... Jesus didn't come for people who are all buttoned up and shiny. You're not that interested in the doctor when you're healthy, right? And you're just not that interested in Jesus until you see your need, 
unless you get the fact that without him, you're not okay. And this section of Isaiah is about looking back on what God has done for you and then looking to the future with rapt kind of anticipation for what God has promised to do. This section of Isaiah is explaining something about us and about God. So first, let's look at verses 6 and 7. That's where we'll spend most of our morning. Most of our morning, we're just going to be thinking about what, um, what's it look like to remember what God has done and what's the role of that in the Christian life? And then what does it look like to pray and plead and long and intercede and ask God to fulfill completely every single promise that he's made? So let me pray for us and then I'll start in verse 6. Holy Spirit, convict us, comfort us, give us zeal, open our eyes a little bit wider. Open our ears. Let us hear your word. Let us see your beauty. The way you act is not how we act. The way you run after people who refuse to listen and obey is unbelievable and unusual. And it's not how we would do things. So I ask that you would um, humble us this morning. Humble us this morning. Let us see you. Let us uh, love you. Let us delight in you. Let us even receive the things you say about your people this morning. Give us the eyes of faith, I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so verse 6 starts with, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance. Take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. This verse says to take no rest and give God no rest. But who's the prophet talking to, right? He tells us when he says, you who put the Lord in remembrance. This is the people. These are the instructions for the watchmen mentioned at the top of the verse. Who should be watching? Who should be peering? Who should be looking and anticipating and praying and interceding for God to fulfill all his promises? We should. The people should. But remember that these people are in exile. Remember that they're generations away from what God did when he freed the Israelites from Egypt. They're generations away from what God did when he split the Red Sea. They're generations away from the reign of good kings like David and Solomon. They need to do deliberate and intentional work to look back on what God has done in the past and remember it and savor it and let it do what it's supposed to do for their soul. This is what I had the opportunity to do this week with it being my birthday. I had the opportunity to look back and recall and remember and recount what God has done in my life because my birthday is not really about me. It's actually about God. I looked back at how he saved me and pursued me and chased me down, even though I ran from him and from his purposes for me. And this isn't just a clever tip, right? This isn't me saying, hey, this is something I learned. It was pretty helpful. You guys should try this. It's actually what we're instructed to do. It's actually a matter of obedience. Look in your Bibles in Deuteronomy 4, verse 9. In the Pew Bible, it's page 148. Deuteronomy 4, starting with verse 9, says, Only take care 
and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. Keep your soul diligently, lest you forget. A massive part of keeping our souls diligently is to refuse to forget what God has done. Turn a page over to the right in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. It's page 151. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Again, we're told that recall has an important part to play in following God. And that's because we forget really, really easily. We tend to forget what God's done for us. Now we can look at the cross, we can read our New Testaments, and we can remember or recount some of the facts of redemptive history. We can, we can uh, we read the scriptures and see that Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus was raised from the dead. But what did Jesus do specifically for you in your life? How did that apply to your heart and soul? What in your life can you name that has the full weight and power of salvation for you? What gifts has God lavished upon you? What acts of forgiveness do you remember when life gets bleak? I'm asking this because these people are being preached to about what God's going to do, but they're still in exile. The point of that is that we are still in exile. We're in an in-between time where everything we experience from God is pointing to a future and final consummation. We're in the middle between what God has done for us and what he will do fully and completely on one day. And Keeping your soul is remembering those things that God has done for us in the past. Because forgetting, forgetting is dangerous. Forgetting is hazardous to the Christian life. Forgetting is poisonous to the Christian soul. We've already seen in Deuteronomy the usefulness of the instruction to remember. Keeping your soul is not forgetting what you've seen and not letting it depart from your heart. So has God come through for you in certain and specific ways? Has he saved you? Has he rescued you? Has God given you food or shelter or clothing? Has God given you parents who love you? Has God given you... Uh, forgiveness from your sin? Has God cleansed you? Has he made you part of the bride that he delights in? Has God given you children? Has he given you meaningful work? Then do the work to remember because it's part of how you keep your soul. It's good for you in the deepest parts of who you are to remember what it is that God has done for us. Remembering what God what God's done is actually an offensive tool against self-pity and a tool to fight, a weapon to fight against ingratitude. It's like vegetables for your soul. The psalmist says in Psalm 42, 4, that these things I remember as I pour out my soul, 
how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. The psalmist is remembering, remembering things that God did with him and for him in the past. He says, my soul is cast down within me, so I will remember you. And in 1 Chron- Chronicles, David says, remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. Remember his covenant love forever. In Psalm 77, verses 11 through 15, it says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. I want this for you. I want you to remember and believe. I want you to be obsessed with what God has done in your life. I want you to recall with powerful gratitude all the blessings that are yours in Christ Jesus. So a paraphrase of Isaiah 62, 6 is, hey, you, you who remember what I'm talking about, you out there who haven't forgotten, you who can honestly say that even though it's been a while since God met you in a personal and powerful way, you still remember you are in exile and know that God's salvation isn't over yet because you've seen him act before and you know that he'll keep his promises. You are who I'm talking to. Don't give up. Don't stop praying. Don't stop begging, pleading, asking God to fulfill his promises. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give God no rest. This is the role. This is the job of the watchman in verse 6. So God says in chapter 62, verse 1, for Zion's sake, I won't keep silent. And then later in verse 6, and I'm going to put watchmen on the wall and they won't keep silent either. God's the one who sets watchmen on the walls in Jerusalem to petition and pray and watch and look for the coming promises of God. Don't rest. Stay vigilant. Give God no rest until he does what he's promised to do. God makes promises. God makes promises to the people, and then he gives particular assignments to those people to bother him and nag him until he makes good on those same promises. There's something about being obsessed with asking God to do what he says he's going to do that's good for us. My, um, my oldest daughter has a special uh, skill at doing this. She's really talented here. She'll come to me two or three or four or 14 days after I mentioned some kind of promise or idea or something that we could do. We can go to McLean's and get a cookie, for instance. And she'll come to me and she'll restate it to me and I'll have forgotten that I said it, possibly. Or I don't remember exactly what I said, but she remembers exactly what I said, right? She says, Dad, you said, you said, Dad, you said, you said, Dad. She'll ask, she'll ask me to make good on what I've promised her. She would never, ever, ever let me forget. And she shouldn't. That's how we're made. We love 
promises. We love anticipation. Human, human beings delight in the prospect of promises fulfilled. She holds the word of her dad in her heart and she cherishes it and reminds me of my word. What a lesson, what a lesson she is to me. God tells us right here in Isaiah 62 to do this. He doesn't say, leave me alone. He doesn't say, don't bother me, I'm busy. He doesn't say, don't ask me again. He says, never rest until you get what I promised you. There's a word, there's a word for this that many of you may not know. In fact, I didn't actually know this word until recently, in the last couple months, but the Puritans used to use it because it comes from the King James Version of Luke chapter 11, where Jesus teaches his disciples what to pray, and he teaches them how to pray. So let's turn to Luke chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 9. It's page 869 in those Bibles in your seats. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, starting in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying, a certain, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say. And then uh, there's a section we're all probably familiar with where he gives them instructions with the Lord's prayer. And then continuing in verse 5, he says, which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within the house and say, don't bother me. The door is shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, he won't give up just because they're friends, but because of his impudence. And that's the word I'm talking about. Because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to him who asks him? The word is importunity. Importunity. And it means persistence, especially to the point of annoyance. And Puritans use this word when they talked about prayer. One Puritan named Christopher Love had this to say about the word. The word in the original signifies impudence or want of shame. My daughter has no shame about asking me 150 times about that cookie, right? No shame. It is a metaphor taken from beggars who are impudently importunate and take no denial. If you deny them once, they will ask you again and ask you again and ask you again and never leave till they get what they desire. It is a gathering together of all the affections of the soul, a stirring them all up in prayer, whereby the soul is so earnestly desirous after good that it will not rest nor leave off the duty until he does find some return. 
So you must pray and continue praying and do not give over till you find some good done upon your hearts till you find sin weakened and graces strengthened. This persistence to the point of annoyance isn't just okay with God. He tells us to not rest and to give him no rest. He says, don't take a break from asking and don't give me a break from hearing. God isn't just okay with us asking to the point of being annoying. He actually loves it. He likes it when we do this. So let's move and talk about what we're praying for, what we're looking for. What are we on the, on the, on the, um, on the wall looking for God to do? Specifically from this text, what does that mean for us today? Like many places in Isaiah and throughout the scriptures, we see God making promises about the future. In Isaiah, God speaks a lot about what his covenant people can look forward to. In this book, we see picture after picture and verse after verse of a day and a time when God's rule and reign for his people is no longer tainted by sin or idolatry. And here we see that the Lord has sworn something to his people. He's made a commitment to them and to us. Verse 8 says, the Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. And what has he sworn? He's sworn that the food, right, the products that these people are laboring to produce that are being eaten by all their oppressors, it won't be that way anymore. He's promising that it won't be that way any longer. Think of the work that it takes to tend and cultivate a vineyard, right? The detail, the process of producing wine. Imagine going to all that effort for your enemy to enjoy and you not get a single taste. This is the kind of thing that no longer will happen. Furthermore, the promise is that you will be you will be the one that's enjoying this wine in the Lord's sanctuary. The picture's clear. God's naming the oppression, the burden that these people are currently facing. Imagine yourself laboring and working, grinding it out day after day after day. Imagine getting up early and going to bed late. Imagine burning it at both ends to be as productive as you can be And now imagine that as you do that, twice a month, your salary is dumped into your enemy's uh, bank account, right? That's what's happening to these people. This is what the people of God have been enduring and are currently enduring day after day, week after week, year after year. No rest, no reprieve. In our text today, God promises that that will never, ever, ever be the case again. There will come a day where that stops and it won't happen anymore. And there's a particular kind of significance to this promise that we can miss. So uh, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. It's page 168 and 169 in your uh, pew Bibles. Deuteronomy 28. I'm going to jump around, but I'll give you a heads up as I do it. 28 verse 1. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall 
shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle and the increase of your herds and young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. And then jump to verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then lastly, jump to verse 30. What are the curses that, that, uh, that uh, they're talking about? Verse 30 says, You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long, but you shall be helpless." A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and all your labors and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. God gave clear instructions to these people. He gave instructions both about what would happen if they listened to him and obeyed him and what would happen if they did not listen to him and chose to disobey him instead. The weight that Israel's carrying is the curse that was promised for their idolatry way back in Deuteronomy 28 and other places. This gives more color and texture to the promise that we see in this text today. The promise that God's making in our text today is in reference to this curse. He's swearing by the strength that he alone can provide. And don't miss that. This promise is not grounded in their strength. It's grounded in the strength of the living God. He promises that by the strength of his all-powerful arm that one day this curse won't be true anymore. And when the salvation of God comes, it'll be able to be true for those that belong to him, those that are his, they'll get the, the benefits of this promise. In this life, in this life, the Lord lets us endure the consequences of our actions. There's strong warnings that we reap what we sow in this life. And this is the kind of thing that is happening to the people of God in Isaiah. If you're a believer in this room, and the weight of your mistakes or your sinful or unwise decisions, if, if that weight is unbearable, then this promise is for you. The promise is that one day, one day we won't battle folly or sin any longer. There's coming a day when we will be free from our flesh, free from the pain of our past, free from shame, free from the struggle to believe, free from the way our sin and weakness affect other people, free from how our sin and weakness harm other people. When I was dating my wife, I was terrified. You see, you see um, she spent her 20s starting a nonprofit for refugee children in Memphis, and I spent my 20s running in the opposite direction of everything good and holy and true. I'd made tons of mistakes in my life and I didn't want to show them to her. 
I've been a foolish and cowardly person in so many places. I've hid from God, and I'd spent years running away from responsibility, and I knew that I would have to pay for that. And the pain and the embarrassment and the shame was met with God's grace and met with the gospel, and that part was beautiful. But the pain of seeing my folly and irresponsibility and immaturity and sin, seeing it affect this woman that trusted me and that loved me, that part was really painful. No one ever told me that in marriage, if you let up or if you coast, if you don't get busy killing sin every single day, it will be after you. And not only after you, it will be after your wife and kids through you. Sin doesn't only affect you, it uses you to hurt others closest to you if you're not vigilant. And seeing the effect of my sin and my foolishness have direct consequences on my family, that hurt. And that's a place where I have to fight to believe the gospel every single day. But this is the promise of Isaiah. There is a day coming, and it's a real day, family, when the strong arm of the Lord will not let that happen ever again. And I want us to be a people who long for that and pray for that, who are asking God to bring that day here. I want us to be longing for it and looking for it like little kids waiting at the window for daddy to come home, right? That's our job. We're the watchmen, waiting, praying, pleading with eager anticipation because that day is coming. Jesus is coming back and he's bringing salvation. And this text says not only for us, but to the ends of the earth. The point there is that this people, the people in our text who looked doomed, are going to be, the promise to them is that they're going to be the very vehicle, right, that the, the, the salvation to the ends of the earth comes through. These people who are in, exi- in exile and look weak and small and oppressed and crushed will be the very mechanism by which the power of God for salvation will arrive on the scene in the face of Jesus Christ. The mention of the ends of the earth in verse 11 would be astonishing to these people. God loves to do those kinds of things. God loves to arrive on the scene and say, see that thing that looks impossible? Yes, that's exactly what I'm going to do. See that person that's wasted their life in sinning and hating me? I'm going to use them. See that man murdering Christians? I'm going to change his name and make him the Apostle Paul and make him the Apostle to the nations. See those unimpressive fishermen? Yeah, those are the kind of men I'm going to use to turn the world upside down. So today is an opportunity for us to do the work to look back and remember what's God done for us and how God works. I mean, what does 1 Corinthians 126 say? Not many of you were wise Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of you were impressive by the world's standards, but that's perfect. That puts us exactly where we want to be. Because God uses our unimpressive realities to glorify himself every time. Every time, every time. God does this so that we don't boast except in him, in him alone. And what's our job? Our job is to remember that. Remember what God did for us and pray and plead for the future reign of Jesus to come rushing in now. Remember what God's done and pray for all of God's promises to be here now. Look for them, ask for them with importunity. 
God, you said, you said, you said, you said, you said, would you do it? Would you do it now? Give us your spirit. Give us your conviction. Give us zeal. Give us an appetite for your glory. Give us passion for your goodness, your greatness, your salvation. Wake us up and fill us with courage to be a part of what you're already doing. That's the job of these watchmen. And they don't rest and they don't give God rest. Is there a promise that you're standing on today? My plead with with you would be ask again and again and again and again and again and again and keep asking until God makes it real. Don't let go. Don't stop knocking. Don't give up because the gospel of Luke says about us that even we wouldn't give snakes when our kids ask for fish and even we wouldn't give a scorpion when they ask for something good like an egg, right? So how much better is God going to treat us? And the point about that picture isn't that God will give you whatever you want if you keep asking. That would actually make him unloving or hateful. The point is, is no matter what you're asking, he's always got something planned for you that's better. He's always got something planned for you that you don't know that's actually richer and fuller and is going to make him look more glorious than your plan could figure out how to do. So let me, let me encourage you. He always has something better in store, even beyond what we ask. Always. God, God never says no because he's a bakery with a sold out sign in the window. Ever. Right? He only says no because he's doing something else and it's always for your good. Something richer, something fuller, something you can't know and you might not know to ask for. In fact, it might be something you don't want right now. He's the kind of father who always gives his kids better, better gifts than what they ask for. So keep asking. Don't take rest. Don't give him rest until our new name makes perfect sense to everyone that's watching. The last promise, the last promise I'm going to touch on before I close is the new name that God promises us in this chapter and he promises the people of God in this chapter. We saw last week in verse 4 a new name for his people where he says, "My delight is in her." That's what he calls the people of God. And this chapter ends with four more titles that God will give to these people. Now I want to talk about them for just a second. Verse 12 says, And they shall be called a holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. I want to point out something that's obvious once I mention it, but if we don't say it out loud, it's easy to to zip past it in the text and miss it. All of these names, all of these titles, every single one are names and titles defined not by you and what you do for God, but by God and his relationship to you, right? Every one of these names is defined by God, how, by how God relates to me. How he relates to me is what defines me. That's a little, um, a little hard to wrap our minds around, but it's true. In order to highlight what I'm trying to say, let me ask, what are the names that you brought in here that you have for yourself that God didn't give you, by the way? What are the names that other people have given you or you have given to yourself? 
Because we like to name ourselves things like loser or idiot or the one who messes everything up. We adopt titles and names for ourselves that are given to us on the playground as kids or that our parents give to us on accident, like the good one or the perfect one or the one who gets good grades or the quiet one or maybe the slacker. We name ourselves better than stuck-up people or more authentic than a fake person or better looking than so-and-so. What's the name that you give yourself? Do you give yourself the name unwanted or ugly or dumb? Do you say, what's my name? My name is, at least I'm not like that guy. We give ourselves names like forsaken and alone and damaged. We give ourselves names like nobody wants me, nobody knows me, nobody even knows I'm here. What's my name? My name is nobody cares. But Jesus, Jesus Jesus changes all of that. You see, the new name that God gives us isn't Jim or Peter or Sally or Allison. It's a name that expresses God's intense, intense movement toward you and his relationship to you. And the truth is that that identity, the name that only God can give you, it has to be received and given to you. We can't make up our own. And here God explains that the names we give ourselves won't hold up. They won't give us the kind of identity that we need because what we need more than anything in the world right now is to know our name, our identity. And here, here, the God of the universe says, if you're in Christ, your name is, I've been after you since before the foundations of the world. Your name is, I'm for you. I redeemed you, never forsaken. Your name is, nothing can stop me from loving you. What does the gospel of Jesus Christ name us? It names us cleansed. It names us new. It names us forgiven. It names us beloved of God. God wants to come to you today and replace the name you've given to yourself with his name for you, a name that's really all about him, that rests on his unchangeable character instead of our fickle character. So as we close, let me say, hey, whatever name you came in with, you don't have to have. You don't have to have it. Whatever name you heard, that's been in the back of your mind, that maybe you're the only person that knows it. You don't have to have it. Your name can be a holy people, redeemed of the Lord, sought after by the living God, a city not forsaken. Through Christ, through Christ, we get this brand new name, this brand new title. God went to great lengths, unimaginable lengths, to give us this new name. Um, And we celebrate that every single week when we take communion. We have uh, have two stations. One will be down here, one will be down here. One in the middle uh, that's uh, single serve and gluten-free. And we'll also have a station up in the balcony. This point of our service is where we celebrate the action of God on our behalf. We take part of Christ's blood and body, take take a moment to celebrate and proclaim the action of God on our behalf to erase and get rid of the name we would give ourselves and give us that new name.
This is where we look back and remember and look forward to a day where the wine that we get to enjoy isn't just the vineyard that that we're working in, but it's actually the wine that we enjoy at the table with Jesus himself at a feast that he's preparing for us. So if you're a Christian, if you believe that, we invite you to take communion. If you're not, I invite you to uh, ask, ask, knock, seek, see if Jesus will show up and prove himself to you. I'm going to pray for us, and then the servers are going to come up. You can come, you can come up whenever you're ready. Father, would you call to mind for the people in this room things that you have done for us, places that you have rescued us, places that you have transformed us, moments that looked dire and dark and bleak and light broke in. Would you bring to mind things that we have seen in our hearts in the past? And would you give us zeal and courage and hope for a future that only you can bring? Would you make us zealous and diligent and importunate people who pray and ask and plead to the point of being annoying? We love you. We trust you. We proclaim your life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come when you're ready.